Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. You're listening to the last of three mini Exocasts this month. If you haven't already heard them, then keep an ear out for our chat with Natalia Guerrero about tests on exoplanet 43b and for our discussion asking the question, will we ever be able to travel to an exoplanet in Exocast 43c? Uh, but coming up on this episode, we're going to take a brief rundown of some of the newsworthy publications from the last month. So Hannah, kick us off with what's been happening. Yeah, so as always, there's been a huge amount of exoplanet news in the last month. So we're just going to give you a quick look at some of the discoveries, characterizations, and other news to discuss. So just as a, a start, list out a couple of TOIs. These are test objects of interest for you to go look up. Uh, another three hot Jupiters have been discovered. Those are TOI 169, 157, and 129. According to the abstract of their paper, they all seem to be fairly typical planets, which I find always an interesting thing to list as typical doesn't seem to be typical when we look a little bit further into some of these worlds. But I want to talk about some interesting work that's been done. And Hugh, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about this. This is uh, two papers came out on the same system, but with two different names. So this is LP729-54 or LTT3780. So these are two papers that came out on the archive on the same day, one by Noah et al. and one by Cloutier et al. And both papers uh, kind of coordinated this, it seems. <laughs> Hugh, you know a little bit more about this. Yeah, you said they coordinated it. I think this is one of the least coordinated. What normally has happened in tests is that... Um, you kind of, before you're publishing papers, you, you tell everyone what, what planets you're following up with radial velocity in this case. And then other people who are also following up the same planet will merge with you and agree to share the same paper. In this case, that didn't happen for whatever reason. So we ended up with um, two papers, one with Carmenes RVs and one with Harps RVs. And they actually produced different masses from those different RVE data sets. So at some point, there'll probably be a third paper which combines the two data sets and gives different masses once again. Um, but it's an interesting system. It's a two-planet system. One of them uh, is a is an ultra-short period planet on a 0.77-day orbit, so something like 18-hour orbit. Um, and it's about 1.35 Earth radii and has either 2.3 or 3.1 Earth masses, depending on which paper you prefer. And then the, the planet, the other planet is much further out, so a 12-day orbit, and it's 2.4 Earth radii and 6.3 or 8.5 Earth masses. And this is kind of a, a dense um, or slightly fluffy sub-Neptune, depending on which mass you take. Um, <laughs> and it, both of these papers kind of mention the fact how this these two planets straddle the radius gap. So the radius gap is this valley at about 1.8 Earth radii, where we don't find planets because they're either concentrated in the super-Earth regime, which is below that, or the mini-Neptune regime above that. Um, but in fact, this system, although uh, it does kind of straddle that gap, it's not actually that useful in telling us what the, the physical origin of this gap mm -hmm. is. Um, but it is a very bright and nearby system, and Planet C looks like a good candidate if James Webb wants to observe mini Neptunes. Um, so all in all, you know, it's, it's another of these interesting uh, multi-planet systems that 
Tess is providing us with. Yeah, so keep an eye out for TOI 732 uh, under those two different names as well as that one for future, because as Hugh says, I reckon that we'll get another mass estimate for both of these planets, which will tell us a little bit more about what kind of world we might expect them to be. Another interesting discovery that came out this month uh, was a new way to potentially identify an exoplanet. So we've had we've talked on this show about many different methods for discovering exoplanets from radial velocities, transit methods, gravitational lensing, direct imaging. A new method that has come out this month that seems to have shown some promise now with some evidence behind it is looking for radio emission from a planet as it interacts with its star. Now, this has been postulated, it's been predicted for around 30 years now, so this isn't really a new method, but this is the first evidence that there might be a planet around an M dwarf star, GJ1151, which shows evidence that there is something moving through the star's magnetic field causing currents to occur. And these currents can then be measured in the radio. Now these were done, these measurements of this excess current, this excess radio were done with the LOFAR array. And they they actually, from these measurements of this, what they call relatively quiet, inactive M star. So what they're saying there is that it's a fairly slowly rotating star. So it's not whipping up lots and lots of curls in its magnetic field. It's a slowly rotating star. And what they they suggest is the presence of an Earth-sized mass or radius is unknown at this point, but an Earth-sized planet on a short one to five day orbit around this star. And this came out in Nature Astronomy uh, just at the beginning of this month, actually. Um, and it seems like there's some potential to move forward with this. What do you guys think? Um, extremely sceptical. Yeah. Um, so what they basically found is that during one eight-hour observation with LOFAR, the M dwarf was um, emitting in this particular um, wavelength, which correlates on Jupiter to where Io would cause this emission. Um, but they don't have any periodicity. So, you know, the, the difference between something like a flare on the star is that the planet should be periodic. But the thing is, they don't have enough data. So they don't have any periodicity. They, don't, they can't really say what the orbit of the planet around the star is, um, only just using like indirect methods. So I think the only way I, I would actually believe this is once we get a lot more radio data and there's a periodic signal on, on an orbit which suggests a planet rather than like a flare going off during the radio observations. Yeah, you made a good point there that, that I didn't mention is that this system would have to be akin to a moon orbiting Jupiter rather than a planet like around our sun. So the planets in our solar system do not have this kind of influence on our, our sun's radio emission. And that's because they're too far away. They don't interact with the magnetic field in that way. Whereas if you look at Jupiter, the system, Jupiter has an enormous magnetic field and it produces a huge amount of radio emission itself. But the moon Io is tidally locked to Jupiter and it also spews out a huge amount of material from itself, which then gets imprinted on the aurora, on the magnetic field of Jupiter itself. 
So we are able to see that footprint of the moons of Jupiter without having to actually observe them, even though we can do both within our solar system. So this is what they've done here. They've inferred the presence of a very, very close in small planet around a small star by this footprint. Um, and as Hugh says, they only got one detection of this. They didn't get a period, periodic signal for that. And to end the discovery part of the news, uh, the discovery is officially over for the KELP project. KELP uh, has now actively stopped searching for exoplanets. Although it was little, it was mighty. It discovered 26 transiting planets in its 15-year survey, and it has appeared again and again and again in Exocast News, with KELP 9b winning the ExoCup trophy in 2018. So KELP has provided Exocast and all of the Exocast fans a lot over the years. So thank you to the KELP survey for all that it has done. It's kind of sad. It is, actually. You know, we attach these, these human emotions to these inanimate objects, and of course we get connected to them like this. It gets me right in the chest. I mean, also that it's the extremely little telescope. It's just yeah, exactly. It's really cute. Right there. It's just right there. <laughs> well, RIP Kelt, and thanks for all the planets. It's not the first transit survey, of course, that switched off. It's basically Tess is 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 now finding everything. So, uh, Wasp and Hat are both switched off. So, um, it's a shame. Uh, let's move on to some characterization news and a little revisit to a planet that's popped up a few times recently k218b and i'm going to throw this one over to andrew to talk about sure um well yeah as we mentioned we've uh, we've discussed k218b in, in some depth before uh, it hit the headlines last year after two separate studies detected water vapor in its atmosphere um and as it's a planet that orbits in its star's habitable zone um, and was pretty small, you know, for that detection, this was interpreted as a big deal, which, you know, it kind of was. Um, however, you know, we covered the, the discovery pretty extensively at the time. We went through the papers and the news. And uh, I don't think we were that convinced, um, especially in the, the kind of habitability argument that they were making of the significance of this discovery. Um, you know, as, yeah, there was there was water vapor detected, sure, but you know, I had no idea about how much of it was there. Um, and we're looking at a very large planet, you know, with a, with a radius of about 2.7 times Earth's radii and maybe eight, eight times its mass. So we'll probably have a very thick atmosphere, which added to us skepticism and maybe the uh the way that the pis went about discussing this in the public um in the popular science literature wasn't wasn't great either but that's that's neither here nor there anyway a new study from um niku uh, madu hasudan um, and others have examined the potential interior and atmosphere of k218b in a little more detail using these um pretty pretty basic uh, equation of state models uh, of the internal structure of the planet to determine what its primary bulk composition is um, and its density. And both of those things are, are pretty important for thinking about, you know, whether this planet can hold on to a, a really thick atmosphere or not. They also use data from um, HST's Wide Field Camera 3, uh, Spitzer, and some optical photometry to retrieve its atmospheric uh, composition anyway. And the model that they used was a little bit more complex than the initial paper, apparently, and considered a few more free uh, parameters and more molecules. 
So anyway, the summary of this is that their results suggest a wide range of possible climate states, depending on what you assume your core is made out of. If you assume an iron core with an outer silicate layer, some water, uh, and then maybe a, an outer hydrogen helium envelope. Um, they suggest that, you know, this could span from anywhere from 0.00001 to 6%. Um, you know, hydrogen helium mass fraction. That's a huge, that's a huge range there. But it has to be admitted that some of that range does put stable liquid water on the surface of a potentially rocky planet. However, there is also a huge amount of supercritical states. And if you're interested in supercritical uh, ices and the like, you can check out a previous uh, exocast. Um, but crucially, they apparently did not conclusively detect clouds or hazes in the atmosphere of K218b. So their question was, you know, do we need to revisit the mass radius limit for planetary habitability? Is this planet, you know, habitable if it has uh, at least some states where there's stable liquid water on the surface? And um, I would I would say probably still no. Um, the fact that it's possible for this planet to have such, a, you know, a thick hydrogen helium uh, fraction has got to be the clincher, right? You can never push Earth into, into such a state. So it does seem like, you know, if you get the parameters tuned just right, you could maybe end up with a, with a, a, a potentially habitable planet. I don't really want to use that term because even if we think about stable liquid water on the surface, which is the thing, um, there's a lot of other things that are really widely uh, unconstrained when we think about habitability here. You know, how the interior dynamics are actually done. Um, this is a pretty a pretty simple model, but I mean, it was following, I can't I can't fault the model, put it that way, um, but it was it was still pretty simple and based on the fact that we have, you know, one planet that has interior dynamics that we have studied and not even that well. Um, it's still very largely unconstrained as to how the, 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 the interior dynamics will work and how they'll connect to the atmosphere. And also what the effect of having a higher planetary mass and surface gravity will have on, on astrobiological implications like the formation of complex molecules, etc. So had they framed this around like, you know, just, just revising estimates around the atmosphere and, and, and thinking about um, super Earths maybe in a different light, I would have had less of an issue with it had but they've gone down this habitability side again, which is, I don't know, K218b seems to be just attracting this controversy. It really does. And and I think that I, I completely agree with you there. I think some of the things that they highlight in this kind of bring up way more questions than they're even trying to answer. And mm. the, the atmosphere stuff is really interesting. Using the models that they've got to fit the data shows an extra way of interpreting this. It shows an extra way of interpreting those observations and what that might mean. But the interior structure and the interior composition is something that they haven't... It would be nice to see how planet formation models and people that study planet formation and planet interiors see the likelihood of formation of these types of worlds. So what is the likelihood that you could have a world that is this large? And this is a very, very large planet. This is a very massive planet. Eight Earth masses is is half the mass of Neptune. Uh, that's really, really quite massive. And looking at that and how likely it is to have something that is just pure rock, iron and magnesium silicates forming, in any kind of system, in any kind of disk, surviving over time, migrating in. Uh, we've got to remember that even though this is in its star's habitable zone, it's still on a very short period orbit. It's still very close to its star, which is a very small star. So how can that much rock exist around such a small star? And these are all just, just really big questions that we have. And I think that that means that we're going to be seeing this planet pop up all over the place when it comes to theoretical models theoretical understanding mm. of 
planet formation and planet habitability and what it, it would be fantastic to get some other examples as well but just like the trappist-1 system i think we're going to see this planet pop up again and again and again as an example of something that we're trying to understand and trying to create in our models which i actually think is a little odd right that it appears so regularly like yes the water vapor detection was good but it, it doesn't straddle that mass radius boundary at all I, I don't actually think it's 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 a very interesting system personally but you know yeah i think i think the same as what hannah said like we need to know a bit more about formation but i feel like mm. just this the, the 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 liquid water on the surface case is so ridiculously unlikely where you have uh basically a sub earth so some a, a core that's like earth like but less than the size of the earth and then you have eight earths worth of water and then you have and and then you have like a tiny little level layer of hydrogen on top i think that's so unlikely to form that the prior probability on that case is so low that the that and and we know that most we know now from from you know density measurements of exoplanets that most planets that don't have atmospheres look like earth right they have a composition of like some iron but mostly silicate um so having like an 80 percent or 90 percent water planet is just so bonkers that we should... Why, why would you consider it? <laughs> right, well, from one bonkers thing to another, moving on to another story that came up very recently on WASP-76b and the discovery of potential iron clouds on a single limb of that planet. So this was done work done by a team uh, from David Ehrenreich. They used the Espresso instrument on the VLT to measure the transit of hot Jupiter was 76b and this measurement actually revealed a strongly shifted signature of the iron line on in the spectrum which suggested that one side of the planet so the transition from the day side to the night side contained strong signatures of iron in the gas phase while the opposing hemisphere so that transition then from the night side to the day side on that limb that we're observing when we're doing transit transmission that the iron is no longer present and therefore has likely condensed and formed clouds deeper in the atmosphere over the cooler night side, resulting in them not seeing it in that that second limb's data. So this is really cool measurement. This is yeah, a, that sounds really elegant. Like it's a really nice way of showing that the heat transport around these tidally locked planets. WASP-76b is an incredibly hot planet. On its day side, it's around 2,300 Kelvin. And what this is suggesting is that the night side is roughly 1,000 Kelvin colder than that day side. So there's very poor heat transport across from the day side to that limb where we're measuring uh, where we're seeing that transition, we're seeing it in the gas phase, the iron will be a gas at this temperature. And then as it goes across the night side, where it never sees the sun, it never sees its star, it's cooling down and condensing to form clouds of iron. And now these clouds of iron will be kind of what, they, what they've said in this press release, they've got a big press release, raining iron, liquid droplets of iron. Likely when you form iron and you condense it, it normally goes straight from the, the gas phase to a solid phase. So we would expect it to be snowing iron in these atmospheres. Clouds of solid sub-micron-sized particles of iron that are forming on the night side of the planet, going deep down into the atmosphere, so dropping in the atmosphere, 
and then being transported around to the day side where they'd be heated up again and vaporized. And then you see this cycle coming around on, on this planet. So this is really, really nice data from the Espresso instrument. And we've seen quite a lot of beautiful data from Espresso and I fully expect to see a lot more from them. And one of the really interesting things about this is, is that while it's a little wacky, like I said, it's not something that is unexpected. So this has been a phenomenon which has been predicted and measured in some respects in brown dwarf atmospheres for many, many years. So for brown dwarf atmospheres, we fully expect clouds to be formed of magnesium silicates, iron, corundum, different minerals and rocks that we have here on Earth, as, as I've talked about many times before, or I try to get into every conversation. Uh, <laughs> and these brown dwarfs, they've seen these changes in their rotational profile so seeing these periodic changes in the in the amount of emission that you can measure from that which suggests that there are clouds forming and dropping out of view as those those brown dwarfs are rotating and this suggests that they also have clouds that are forming in this very similar way so this is this is the first evidence though that we've got of this really beautiful transition across the day side and night side limbs of the planet where we can interpret and try to understand a little bit more this 3D nature of these planets. And I, I fully expect that with a lot of future low resolution studies with the James Webb Space Telescope, we will be able to get low resolution transmission spectra of different molecules for this kind of measurement and really start picking apart these planets as not just 1D or 2D objects, these kind of limbs that we're seeing where we're averaging them, but these actually spatially different and spatially interesting worlds. I don't know, Hannah, I think if you'd if you'd presented uh, that, that particular discovery, even 50 or 60 years ago, with if you were listening to our previous Exocast, with the crazy ideas that were going out there, <laughs> the thoughts of these iron clouds and iron rain and conundrum, you know, corundum rain. I mean, I'm sitting here shaking my head, not that I disagree, but just because <laughs> I really struggle to get my head around that as a, as a concept, like a, a ferrological cycle taking place, Isn't it basically. Isn't beautiful? Yeah. It's, it's one of my favourite things that I, you know, studying and trying to understand these and not only that but like I said we're ex we expect these clouds will form go immediately from that gas phase to that solid phase and the reason why we have that idea is and I don't know if they detail this and they don't detail this in this paper it's not really about that kind of aspect of it but I was talking with uh, a, a lot of geologists I was talking with a lot of mineralogists when I was uh, visiting a couple of places one uh, in particular was the American Museum of Natural History, talking with them and having the discussion about how do these materials act in different situations. And when we see them and when we measure them in different astrophysical contexts, we, we know that, that it's very unlikely that they stay in the liquid phase for very long at all. We do fully expect them due to the binding energies and a number of other things to go straight into that solid crystalline state. So there's a lot of things that we kind of have to change the way we think about clouds. We have to change the way we think about rain in these planetary atmospheres. And that's something that I'm really excited to now start seeing going from this theoretical work where we're using the information we have of these different rocks, these different materials here on Earth that we're measuring in the lab and applying that and trying to understand that as a phenomenon in a gravitationally bound atmosphere. Because previously we've seen them in star forming regions, we've seen them in disks, We've seen 
evidence of them in galactic centers. But in these, you know, quiescent, gravitationally bound atmospheres where they're not being internally heated, so they're not in an atmosphere of a star, for example, where, you know, something like Betelgeuse recently started dimming. The idea behind that is that it was forming dust in its atmosphere. So the way that that forms dust is incredibly different to how these planets will be forming these dust clouds in their atmospheres and what they're going to be made of. So having the evidence and starting to really pick that apart is incredibly exciting. And when I first saw this paper, um, I was lucky enough to see it a few days before the press release came out and I just got so excited. And I emailed them back immediately and I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) Well, I wonder if it's because you did such a good job of describing it and expressing your passion and enthusiasm for this that, you know, that, that I'm now super interested in it too. <laughs> Talking of awesome work that Hannah's been doing though, um, I saw a paper out recently with uh, with a Wakeford uh, primary <laughs> author on it. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that, Hannah? Was... Um, so the, what we did was we have used, uh, we've published scientific data for the first time Uh, using an instrument that has been on the Hubble Space Telescope since 2009. But this instrument hasn't been used for scientific research because it's a pain in the ass. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) At what point did you realise this? Before or after you decided to... (laughs) We we proposed for these observations. So these observations are part of a pilot programme that we proposed for many years ago. And... We've been working on them for for about two years now, trying to pick apart and understand these data. And what it is, is this is the Wide Field Camera Free, which we've talked about a lot here on Exocast. You've probably heard so many times. Wide Field Camera Free actually has two different channels. It has a UV channel and infrared channel. And we normally talk about the infrared channel. We're normally talking about looking for water absorption. But this instrument actually has a UV channel. And in that UV channel, it has a single spectrograph. And this spectrograph just hasn't been used because it's quite complicated. When it spreads the light from the star out, it's not straight. It's not a nice straight line. Uh, It spreads it out in like a curved shape. And it also kind of disperses the light through multiple orders. So, you know, when you see a rainbow, you're seeing, you see one rainbow. And then if you see a double rainbow, there's a gap. And then the next rainbow that you're seeing In a prism, you can have something very similar. They're called orders. We get the first order, and then we also, in this instrument mode, get the second and third order. And unfortunately, they overlap. So imagine trying to understand those rainbows, but putting the second rainbow overlapping halfway across the first and trying to pick those two apart. So that's what we kind of were expecting and having to deal with with this instrument. So it's a a tricky instrument to play with, but... The amazing thing about it and the reason why we're so excited about it and are really looking forward to using it again on a number of planets um, is that we can get all of the information from the UV right the way up to the the optical near-infrared in one observation. So previously with the Hubble Space Telescope, we would have had to do that in multiple observations with a different instrument. And that leads to lots of different issues where we're not sure if we're calibrating right. There'll be different observations at different times. So this instrument, this new kind of, we call it a new mode, but it's been on there for years. But this new mode means that we can get a single, in one single observation, this huge wavelength range, this huge amount of information from an exoplanet atmosphere. 
but also we can get it at very high precision. So we, uh, we were able to show that the measurements we were making were the equivalent or actually in many cases better than the measurements we've already been making with these two other instrument modes that I mentioned before. So this is a really exciting thing moving forward. We've now managed to make some pipelines so that you can actually do this analysis a little easier. So you don't have to spend two years trying to do it like, uh, like I did. Um, and hopefully, hopefully it will be a really efficient way of not only increasing Hubble's UV legacy, because the James Webb Space Telescope will not be able to access the UV, but also it perfectly complements the James Webb Space Telescope in that it goes right up to uh, 800 nanometers and the James Webb Space Telescope starts at 600. So there's that small overlapping region there. So in the future, I'm really hoping to see the use of this instrument kick off. Uh, quite excited about it. It's, it's fantastic work, Hannah. Um, and yeah, I guess I was going to ask what, what you were envisaging the community would be using this instrument mode for in the future now that you've made it accessible. What What is the kind of data we might be able to extract from an exoplanet atmosphere, for example, with this new mode? Yes, yeah, so there's lots of exciting things you can do in this wavelength range. One of them is mm -hmm. look for atmosphere of, uh, if you've got a really highly irradiated atmosphere, there's lots of energy from the star kind of bombarding it. We expect a lot of these atmospheres to be losing the material from them. And some of the atmospheres will be so losing that atmosphere so, so readily that metals can be stripped from them. So one of the things you can do with this mode that you haven't been able to do very easily with Hubble before is look for iron and magnesium being stripped from the planet. So this requires UV wavelengths and the UV is very easily impacted by the interstellar medium. So normally we're restricted to looking at very nearby stars that are very bright. But with this mode, we'll be able to look at very distant stars that aren't as bright because it's, it's a very efficient mode at doing this. So hopefully we'll be able to kind of understand what types of planets are losing their iron and their magnesium uh, and how that kind of correlates with the type of star they're, they're orbiting. But another thing that we can do with this is we were just talking about clouds. We were just talking about how clouds affect an atmosphere. And one of the things that we really need to understand for those is the optical. So clouds and particles that are forming in an atmosphere have the biggest impact on our measurements in the optical and the UV. And as you move into the UV, they have this effect on the light that is really characteristic of what they're made of. So we can start to try and understand how big the particles of these clouds are and where they are in the atmosphere, which can also tell us a little bit about the dynamics. But the, the final thing that's super exciting about this portion of the UV and being able to tie it to the optical in one observation is that our solar system giant planets, their atmospheres shine like twinkly starlights in the UV. They have so many different strange absorbers, photochemical species that have absorption signatures in the UV that we've never even tried looking for in exoplanet atmospheres. So in all honesty, we don't know what we're going to find, but we're kind of excited to see what these mysteries are and whether or not we can tie that back to our solar system. Fun new things. Yeah, really cool. cool. Good work. Yeah. Okay, I think uh, to round off our podcast on the news, uh, I think we'll throw it back to Andrew because there was some evidence for past habitability on Mercury. Mm. 
Well, apparently so. You know, I, I think this word habitability now has um, has really been diluted to the point of ridiculousness. But I thought this was a kind of cool um, cool discovery anyway. Uh, it was, it's out in Nature uh, this month, and there was some evidence of large scale volatile degassing from these chaotic land features on, Mer uh, on Mercury's surface. Now, um, you know, I have to go back to my geomorphology notes to read up about those chaotic land features. But basically, what, what this uh, this team did was they used, you know, really old data, uh, 1974 Mariner 10 flybys, to basically look for um, uh, elevation anomalies where the land should be higher than it was. Um, and they're interpreting those differences in where they think the land surface should be with where it actually is as um, a volume of mass that was lost due to degassing of volatiles, you know, uh, oxygen bearing species, water vapor, that kind of stuff. They said that was bound up in these compositional units. So basically what this means is that they thought the surface, um, at least the near surface of Mercury could have been under a much more habitable atmosphere, let's put it that way, than it currently is. That there would have been the abilities for those rocks, those minerals, to have stable volatiles, you know, within their mineral structure, which they're saying could suggest habitable conditions. But you know, with the enormous caveat of what does that even mean in this context? And they've even gone further to attach that to potentially existing in Mercury-like exoplanets, according to the. The, uh, the lead author of this paper. So they're trying to connect this not just from the solar system to a degree of habitability in, in Mercury and maybe pushing our bounds for what it means to be habitable, but also trying to extend this to exoplanets. When we say past habitability of Mercury and evidence for that, we are not saying that people uh, have found evidence of life or potential oh, life absolutely in not. Mercury, but that it Mercury itself might possibly have had conditions that were habitable so it's not past habitability but the potential for a habitable nature yes if you if you look purely at volatile degassing from continental crust uh, as as your proxy which which is it's 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 kind of elegant and i kind of like it um i think it would have been an interesting paper had they not connected this to you know exoplanetability or whatever that might mean and certainly not exoplanets i think that is a that is maybe a, too much of a push um but certainly you know that that i guess suggests that um you know we discussed isis of course and the fact that that mercury is a planet that has that has ice on it mm -hmm. uh, which might be surprising to people and the surface and the and the history and the geological history of mercury is, is pretty uh pretty un, um, not very well studied so i guess as an example of something that is pushing our understanding of the solar system in its earliest history then that yeah that's 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 a cool finding whether you can make the claims that they they did in this paper and i encourage you to read it yourself um I, i'm not too sure about I'm not too sure about. Well, it's been an interesting month of exoplanet news as always. So we'll see what happens in the coming month. Did we want to talk about the current situation at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's. it seems like it would be an effort to avoid the the obvious, right? The, the large elephant in our individual rooms that we're keeping at a good social distance from us. Um, in the fact that while this maybe hasn't affected how we do our uh, do exocast for example in the logistics it's impossible to deny that it hasn't 
affected me anyway uh, in a psychological sense, right? The sense that yeah, that, that, that things we're, we're living in an extraordinary time here, and yeah. is is there still value in in us sitting here in our in our rooms discussing these kind of topics when it seems like uh, the world is in a pretty precarious state right now? Well, I think I think there's value in in doing the things that we're used to, right? In 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 trying to maintain some level of uh, routine, right? Exactly. So, and and for for us, and maybe for our listeners, listening, list, making and listening Exocast is kind of routine now. So, it kind of feels a bit like normal when we do this. Um, it does, at least for me. Yeah, and at least for the last hour and a half or so, uh, it's yeah. maybe not been at the top of my mind. <laughs> exactly. It's felt nice to to talk about these topics, and I think it's nice to to hear about them and and see that the world can exist, and we can still have these thought experiments, and that we're not just stuck within the realm of going, well, what's happening in the next 24 hours? What's happening in the mm-hmm. next 24 hours? Yeah. And I think that that's the difficult point that we're in, thinking on such short terms. And it's yeah. stressful to think about on long terms. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems to be changing and evolving you know, every day, and the, the conflicting advice and conflicting restrictions from different governments. Um, you know, we're we're across we're spanning two countries at the moment, and they've taken somewhat different approaches to try and uh, restrict and 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 manage this crisis. And I think that we're in a unique situation where we we have the privileged ability to work from home. Yes, yes. we yes. also have yeah. the privileged ability to understand a log log plot when we see one. Yes, yeah. that is that is true. I've I've seen some some terrible data science <laughs> on Twitter recently. Um, so I which... think that we need to acknowledge that. And I, I, you know, massive massive thank you to any of our listeners or, or anyone in your lives who is currently working right now and keeping the world together. Um, because yeah. we are not some of those people. It's well said, Hannah. Yeah, yeah. But I think we should wrap it up there. Think about what you want to hear on our future Exocast episodes. So let us know about that. Yeah. And um, again, thank you very much for joining us on this, our our third minicast uh, of the month. Um, you can tell us how much you enjoyed it or how much you hated it uh, via social media at exo underscore cast on Twitter or on our Facebook page, of course. And as always, you can find all of our episodes on our website, Exocast org or on itunes or any good reputable podcast retailer uh spotify of course and uh any other apps you might have but until next time bye 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 goodbye exocast this podcast was brought to you by the exocast team hannah wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the university of bristol in the uk hugh osborne is the test chaos fellow at mit and the university of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.